Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio. I'm Darren Hefty. And I'm Brian Hefty. Thanks for joining us today. We've got a great show for you. We're going to talk a little about alfalfa treatments. Alfalfa is not a crop we commonly discuss here on the show at length, but we're going to do a little more of that today. If you've got any questions for us or if there's anything you'd like to talk about that's going on in your farm, our number here is 844-44-AG-PHD. It's 844-442-4743. You can email us, radio at agphd.com, or send us a note on Twitter, agphdmedia, Darren Hefty, or Brian Hefty. We are live in the Morton studio today, and uh, I'm happy that we got harvest done a couple of days ago. I thought you were going to say you're happy that it was snowing today, and I was going to throw something at you. Yeah. Uh, Well, I mean, there's a little bit of light snow. It's November in South Dakota. You're going to get snow in November. I, I don't know too many Novembers where we don't get snow. So that's it's just one of the things that we have to deal with. It's been a tough year, and it just continues to remain tough. I was talking to a farmer this morning. He goes, yeah, I'm just trying to forget 2019 and move into 2020. And I said, that's exactly my sentiment, too. So we're just trying to get this year done and move on. Well, anyway, uh, when it comes to alfalfa, so we're going to talk about some of the treatments today that you might put on your alfalfa to extend its life basically and extend the uh, let's see how do I want to say this the uh, preserve the feed value all right but before we do that I just want to tell you real quick with alfalfa there are many things you can do to highly manage that just like in other crops so as a real quick summary for some of the other things that we often talk about with alfalfa One is fertility. When you think alfalfa, it's whole different than corn, soybeans, or wheat because it's a perennial crop, not an annual crop. With perennial crops, we have to look at long-term applications of nutrients that don't move well in the soil. Phosphorus, potassium, and zinc would be three nutrients in particular where if you could load that ground up and inject the PK and zinc down deeper in the soil where the alfalfa is going to use it, you will be more efficient with your fertility use. Now, obviously, you have to be careful about um, how light the soil is, if it will hold the potassium, but phosphorus and zinc is really no problem at all. So in our geography, we, we have cold soils, we have heavy ground, we don't typically have a lot of rainfall. So if I can get a guy to put four years worth of phosphorus, potassium, and zinc on all in one shot before he plants the alfalfa and put it down in the ground, uh, that guy's going to be money ahead. So that's the first thing. Next thing, when we talk about herbicides, you have very few choices with alfalfa. Eptam down, post-emerge, you got Buctrel, you got Raptor, and you've got a very low rate of butyrac. That's about it. Other than, of course, grass killer. You could go out with some clethodim to kill grass. But Anyway, you don't have many choices, so you have to make sure that you get that EPTAM down. That's got to be incorporated, but that is by far the best pre-emerge product for alfalfa for weed control. Next thing is bugs. We'd really encourage you scout your alfalfa on a very regular basis. Here's what usually happens. Here's the, here are the calls that Darren and I will commonly get. guys will be out there cutting their alfalfa and they'll say, hey, I got bugs now. (laughs) Well, you can't spray now. The alfalfa is laying on the field. Or we'll get questions from guys who will call because they're out bailing the alfalfa and they go, yeah, my alfalfa is not regrowing. 
And we go, okay, chances are you have a bug issue. So you want to catch that before it gets to the point where you're out there actually cutting the alfalfa and you see a whole bunch of bugs. And definitely before the point where the alfalfa isn't even regrowing because there are so many bugs. So a lot of the pre-harvest intervals, it's one to two weeks. So one to two weeks before you're going to cut, you should be out there or even earlier uh, scouting and getting your spraying done for insecticide insecticides really inexpensive in a lot of cases we're talking two dollars an acre maybe four or six dollars but most of the products that are used anymore are two dollars an acre for a lot of the alfalfa insects that we see so for two bucks it doesn't take a whole lot of bugs to justify that treatment and then i guess the last couple things i would say fungicide when it comes to fungicide use there's very little on alfalfa we would encourage you to do some experiments with that we're seeing better winter survival when fungicide's been used we're seeing better overall plant health when fungicide is used early in the year so fungicide treatments absolutely can pay in alfalfa if you haven't tried them just at least try them and see if it works for you and then finally, some of the biological products that we very commonly talk about here on the show, and for that matter, plant growth hormones, that that whole other realm of agriculture, a lot of things that look pretty interesting for alfalfa. So just something you might want to keep in mind and, again, experiment with as you go to the future. All right, so again, we'll talk a little more about alfalfa treatment specifically here later in the show. Uh, Darren, anything else you wanted to get to to begin the day? Well, I mean, you think about alfalfa just the perennial crop and i'm looking at all the photos and videos online of farmers just trying to get the crop out this year and it's the second year in a row in a lot of areas and i i, I think about compaction in those situations well yeah everybody talks about it everybody knows they're going to deal with it we're going to do some tillage or something in those areas to try to get it fixed what about an alfalfa because guys have to get that cutting off and i get it you've got a growing crop out there so it's generally not quite as muddy as it's been in some of these row crop fields. I get that, but still we're driving heavy equipment out there every which direction. It's not like we're controlling the traffic in a lot of these alfalfa fields and it's something over time that, that we're going to have to deal with. And you kind of mentioned the fertility thing to start off early too. I, I talked to a lot of, of farmers that are really excited about some of the yields they're getting in alfalfa and it all comes with the price because we're pulling nutrition out of those soils that we're going to have to put back. So, yep, the hay price needs to be pretty good just to justify the nutrients that we're removing to make each ton. And that's something you can check out on the Ag PhD Fertilizer Removal app just to see, all right, what's in a ton of hay for nutrients? How much does it actually cost me at today's fertility prices? And it would be kind of a nice little spreadsheet to make for yourself too, as far as, all right, if fertility prices are here, then each ton of hay is worth at least this when you add in my labor and so forth to, to take care of it, my land costs. So here we go. Now I, I know, all right, $100 a ton, uh, is that a good price for me? Maybe, but maybe not. We're going to talk about alfalfa treatments on today's show. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Your grain bin fans can cost you a lot. High electric bills from running when conditions are not ideal, shrinkage from overdried grain, and spoiled grain all take money out of your pocket. With the Steps GMS app temperature humidity switch, get your bin fans to start making you money. Only run vans when the conditions are right. Eliminate shrink and spoilage in your bins. Deliver grain in top condition at market moisture. When every dollar counts, you need Steps GMS. Contact us today at stepsgms.com. 
Want to cut production costs without losing yield? Brian Ryberg from Buffalo Lake, Minnesota has done just that. Here's his story. We began using a soil warrior in our farm fall of 2014. We've seen many benefits from better water infiltration, a lot less hours on equipment, fuel, able to reduce our fertilizer side, so it's really simplified our operation. See what makes Soil Warrior different and better at SoilWarrior.com. For generations, your family has given their all to create a farming legacy. The fields now in your care are a heavy responsibility to sustain. You can't control when or how rain falls, but you can ensure your fields remain productive by taking water drainage into your own hands with the SoilMax Gold Digger Tile Plow. SoilMax Tile Plows bring a quick return in dollars, but no ROI is greater than a family's farming future. Let SoilMax ensure your greatest investment continues. Visit SoilMax.com to learn more. Worried about glyphosate-resistant weeds and grasses in your corn? Unleash the power of new Impact Z herbicide and get the early post-application advantage you've been waiting for. Save $3 per acre when you combine Impact Z with a qualifying insecticide purchase. Go to buy2save3.com for details. Buy2save3 is a service mark and Impact Z is a trademark owned by AMVAC Chemical Corporation. All rights reserved. Impact Z is a restricted-use pesticide. Always read and follow label instructions. Back, you're listening to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio today. We're going to talk about alfalfa on our show, and we're going to have our phone lines open throughout the show at 844-44-AG-PHD. If you have an agronomic question or would like to chat a little bit about alfalfa or any, any other topic around your farm, that would be great. Our email box is always open, radio at agphd.com, or you can find us on Twitter, agphd Media, Brian Hefty or Darren Hefty. Well, with uh, another USDA report coming out here shortly on Friday, I thought it'd be a good time to have our friend Scott Harms on with Green PhD. Scott, how are you doing today? Uh, hanging in there, Darren. All right, so uh, the key figure is going to be their update on 2019 production for corn and soybeans. What are the trade expectations right now, and what do you expect on Friday? Yeah, the uh, USDA is going to release their updated numbers 11 a.m. Central Time on Friday. They'll take another crack at Trying to estimate this historic uh, year, uh, corn size, uh, corn and soybean crop sizes. Uh, they'll also be adjusting the demand figures on the corn side. Uh, the pre-report expectations from all the analysts are showing about uh, just under a one or right around a one bushel per acre decline. Uh, that with uh, 500,000 acres cut off of the harvested acreage numbers is going to drop production in their eyes about 177 million bushels. Um, so when we look at the projected carryover estimate, uh, most of the analysts just took that number all the way through and dropped carryover about 160, 170 million bushel. Uh, but um, I think the, the price weakness that we've seen this week is tied to the concerns that there's going to be larger cuts on the demand side of the equation. Some analysts have it as much as 150 million bushel on the demand side. We're running ethanol crush pace, uh, ethanol usage pace uh, for corn, about 25 bushel, uh, million bushel below the uh, USDA's estimate current pace. And uh, on the export side of it, exports, as we all know, are very pathetic. So there could very well be a cut, and that would leave, if that were to occur, that would leave carryover largely unchanged. And uh, I think that's what the market is kind of looking at this week and, and fearful of. Of the 21 analysts in the um, 
uh, poll, only three analysts saw an increase in yield going into um, this report for corn. But uh, one of those uh, one of those services has get grabbed all the headlines. Uh, so I think that also that fear, that reality that maybe you know yields go up. Some of these yields are coming in in certain areas are coming in as expected or better than they thought it would be. But we're still only 50 percent. Um, or so, just over 50% harvested. So the fear, I think, would be that the USDA would punt um, and make a small adjustment this month, waiting for more uh, information. On the soybean side, uh, not a lot of changes, just a slight uh, reduction in yield and not a big change as expected uh, to the balance sheet. But as far as I've I've long held that the yield for both corn and soybeans are overstated, and that's despite the price weakness this week. And you know I'm not going to move off that belief, especially with some of the weather that we've seen after October 1st and a crop that was already in trouble. You know per- perhaps taking another hit in certain areas. So um, you know the cuts on the demand side are going to be there. There's no question that they're going to cut uh, exports. So that's going to be a factor we're going to have to deal with. So the, the cut on the yield side is going to have to be large enough uh, to dwarf whatever cuts we get on the demand side if we're going to see any kind of um, big price move. But, you know, the spread trade and the strong basis levels across the country, they just don't argue for burdensome supplies. And, you know, we may not be exporting corn, but it's it's going somewhere. You know, we work some, with some elevators that, you know, they're moving grain out as fast as they can get it in in some, in some locations. So, it is going to the interior levels, whether, you know, I assume it's feed and uh, crush or storage. But, you know, I've seen some opinions on why this is happening. I mean, anyone with a keyboard and Internet connection seems to have one. Uh, but, you know, I can't help but think, in my opinion, that there's going to be something that we see in the future that's going to explain what we're seeing now. But, you know, I just don't know. I guess I'm not sure what that is. I don't know why this, you know, that's the strong basis levels out there. But it feels like something. Uh, something we're going to learn down the road. You know, we do have unusually strong basis levels right now for the Midwest, and we've been talking about this quite a bit. Uh, a lot of farmers that we talk to are, are considering rewarding that solid basis opportunity and, and perhaps reowning those sales on paper. Uh, but, of course, then you get another cost that you've got to absorb. So what what are the risks to doing that, selling the grain, taking this basis, uh, but then reowning it on paper? Yeah, there is a... There's a cost to selling your grain and reowning it on paper. Buying a call option, something we talked about a lot, is the safest, and that's the most popular strategy used when you're going to reopen the upside on grain that you sold. You know, the price of the option is determined by how much time you want to cover that time window and then how close to the futures market you're going to be. So, uh, for example, a July call option for next summer is going to cost more than a March uh, call option that expires in February. Uh, and a call option in corn that's a 390 call is going to cost a lot more than a 420 call. So those are things you have to determine. So when we work with someone, we try to figure out exactly what you want to spend. What kind of cost are you willing to absorb to try to reopen that upside? And say a call option costs 15 cents, and that would be around 700. That would be 750 dollars per 5,000 bushel contract. So that's what you're adding. And then um, you know the, the the benefit of selling the grain w- with the strong basis. And spending 15 cents comes from you know, protecting against the decline in both basis and flat price. So if flat price drops 15 cents and basis crashes by 15 cents, you know, that 15 cents you spent on a call option seems well worth it, plus you have all that upside reopened. So it's um, a strategy that um, has been, you know, used a lot this year, basis contracts 
um, that have been used in the past probably make the most sense, make you know, make more sense this year than ever. Um, so there's a lot of things that people have to do differently this year than perhaps they've done in the past. But um, you can use, you can reopen that upside using futures and options. All right. So if you wanted to do something different, you don't want to use options, but you still want to reown these sales and manage risks. Uh, what are what are other alternatives that that you could do? Yeah, the well, like I say, the call options are the simplest and the safest for people to understand, and and you put up your money up front. You don't have to worry about additional costs. Uh, the downside to owning options is they don't work one to one futures. Each option has a delta equivalent attached to it, and that determines basically how closely it follows futures. So, if you have an option that has a fifty percent delta on it. If you get a ten cent move in futures, that option is only going to move five cents in your favor, and that delta is going to change as the market changes. So, for those that want a more efficient reownership strategy, um, we look to use futures. We have this discussion with people: we use futures and use protective stops on it. So, the conversation I have is: if you're willing to spend fifteen cents on an option, are you willing to spend the same amount buying a futures contract and using a fifteen cent protective stop? Now, it's not always that easy, but you can protect. You can you can you can keep your manager costs using futures just as you can manage your costs by buying an option. In this case, you would buy futures, you get a one-for-one one, one, one benefit as the market moves higher, and then you you manage your costs by using a 15-cent stop below your entry point. So the market goes 15 cents uh, lower, you're going to get stopped out, you're going to lose 15 cents, the same as you, if you bought an option and paid 15 cents. Um, now the strategy does involve more management because it's it's not a position that you can just put on and forget about. You know we always got to be looking for opportunities to tighten that stop up, reduce that risk. So if the market rallies 15 cents, we may move that stop back to your break even, and then that option, then that strategy costs you zero, and you have that entire upside reopen. And the other benefit is if you sell the grain and you sell your corn at 380, and but you really wanted four dollars, that was your profit objective you didn't get it you sold off the combine at 380 you can make that 20 cents up a lot quicker by using a futures contract managed properly than you can by buying an option and you need you may need a 30 or a 35 cent move to get that 20 cents back uh, using an option so it's it's a more effective tool um, but it does take a little more management. Yeah, I've got to manage our futures risk and also our basis risk. And, and I hear guys talking about basis-only contracts as well. Of course, you don't have the futures side um, protected on that. So there, there's a lot of holes in a lot of these things, but there are certainly quite a few different tools growers are choosing. How about for next year's production? Is there is there any shot to making sales now for next year's crop? We only have uh, about 20 seconds. Okay. Um, well, I'm... As you know, I'm friendly on, on this report or these the next couple of reports. So we want to take advantage of this price strength if we get it and uh, buy uh, you know sell futures in the 410 to 420 area. You can look at short dated uh, July options for next spring. We're looking at those as well. But use this price strength to take some pressure off of next year's sales. Well, let's get it all done at once. Scott Harms with Grain PhD. Of course, you can find. All the grain information you're looking for, grainphd.com to help you with your marketing programs. Thanks, Scott. Have a great day. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Find your full potential and increase your bottom line with branded generic herbicides from Atticus LLC. Tough broadleaf weeds are a hassle, but they're no match for Cavallo from Atticus. Cavallo delivers fast, contact, and residual control so your corn, soybean, and sorghum crops can thrive. Growers across the region count on Atticus for relevant and reliable products that deliver results every time. 
Ask your local retailer about Atticus products and visit AtticusLLC.com to learn more. For value-based solutions you can trust, turn to Atticus. Always read and follow label instructions. Are you combining around weed patches, waiting for weeds to dry down, or tired of spring burndown failures? Save time, nutrients, and moisture by including a Valor herbicide brand in your fall burndown program. Valor provides excellent residual control of tough weeds, including kochia, mare's tail, prickly lettuce, dandelion, plus suppression of bromes. Proactive, effective weed resistance management starts in the fall. Get a clean start for your next season with Valor herbicide brands. Always read and follow label directions. Soil needs plants to stay healthy, just like plants need soil to survive. Nature thrives on forming connections. Farmers thrive on forming them too. With Indigo Marketplace, we're setting out to connect every farmer with every buyer, making it easier to find a market for the things that make your farm unique. Visit indigoag.com questions to find out more. Indigo. From questions, we grow. A pasture should have two things, grass and cattle. No weeds, no brush. That's why Chaparral Herbicide offers the broadest spectrum weed control available. It controls weeds other products can miss, like buckbrush and Canada thistle. And less weeds and brush in your pastures means more forage, so you spend less on feed. Chaparral also suppresses seed heads, lessening the effects of fescue toxicosis, all while providing season-long residual control. Visit NoWeedsNoBrush.com today and learn more about Chaparral. Every farmer knows that in order to be profitable, you need to maximize the return on your crop input investments. Hi, I'm Scott Harms, an agri specialist with Grain PhD. Without an effective and flexible strategy, your grain marketing plan gets stuck in the mud. With Grain PhD, you get the clarity and guidance a solid marketing plan needs. Our free GrainBridge software simplifies your cost profit analysis, and our risk specialists are here to help you develop your plan. Sign up today at grainphd.com. Revitech fungicide from BASF has been specifically developed for the selective soybean grower who doesn't compromise. If you think good is good enough, if you're okay with just achieving rather than overachieving, if average is your goal, this is not the fungicide for you. Revitech fungicide, brand new chemistry, three no excuse modes of action, zero modes of compromise. Sounds like the fungicide for you. Revitech fungicide from BASF, that's smart. Always read and follow label directions. Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. Brian Hefty here along with my brother Darren live in the Morton studio today. We were just talking a little about grain markets, but we're going to get back to our main topic, which is alfalfa treatments and especially alfalfa preservatives. And, uh, you know, it really anything else going on with alfalfa, it's kind of our show topic today is alfalfa. Uh, next on the show, we've got Rocky Limu. He is with Mississippi State University. Rocky, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Excellent. So, Rocky, I got to give you a little background here. The reason why we started the, or we had the idea that, hey, we need to talk about alfalfa soon is because we had a question pretty recently from a farmer who said, you know, how do you manage it when you're going to get rain and, and or if your alfalfa just isn't drying down very well, what do you do to preserve it? What do you do to make sure that you have good quality alfalfa? And he asked us a few other questions in terms of alfalfa quality. But that's kind of, I mean, to cue this whole thing up, I, I, I would start with this. Um, in, in your state, I have to assume as much rain as you get that it's 
a big a big challenge for a lot of people to get their alfalfa up before the next rainfall event, isn't it? Uh, that's correct. We not use alfalfa, but pretty much all the hay that we produce, we're dealing with those issues as well. Uh, so, sorry, I think I think we missed that. I, I I don't know if we have the the best connection. Say, can you say that one more time for me, Rocky? I said that you know the issue that we we have that issue in the southern United States with the uh, rainfall and humidity, and uh, not only with alfalfa, but pretty much with all the hay production systems. Yeah, it's uh. It's a real challenge getting that alfalfa up. You, know, you talk about it's that, Rocky. When, but when, even uh, here, with the humidity this year, the right. northern U.S. had just ridiculous amounts of humidity too. Brian, what was the what was the humidity here uh, in the summer? I know there was a period of time where our humidity for what a good month was stronger was, than Miami, Florida. Right. It was crazy. Right, it was over eighty percent. Over eighty percent for two straight months. That was our average humidity where we're at, and we're considered Which is a dry unusual. Area of the Unusual, Rocky, to be fair. Yep, it is. But, you know, that's the reason why we start talking about, okay, what other tactics can we have? And obviously, you know, it's nice to say, all right, well, we'll just wait for a a dry time. But in a lot of cases, that doesn't work. So guys want to put their alfalfa up a little wet. I assume you have a bunch of that going on. Do you have a lot of farmers in Mississippi who are using treatments like propionic acid, for example? That, that's correct. You know, and one thing that uh, producers need to be aware is that there are two uh, modes of action, what we call a desiccant, which yes. is a compound that we apply to hay that cutting to increase drying, uh, the drying rate, uh, or we use a preservative, and the preservative is applied to hay when you're bailing, and what you're doing is try to reduce the temperature and uh, reduce the spoilage when you have higher moisture content. Yeah, so the desiccants just haven't been real popular, I think in part because you got to use a lot of water then, and typically desiccants, we're talking like potassium or sodium sodium carbonate, something like that. But with preservatives, it comes Mm -hmm. down to uh, acetic acids. A lot of people ask about that, but propionic acid has been the main preservative that's been used for years and years. I I mean, even for Darren and me, when we were young agronomists, we were talking about propionic acid with guys. So... Are, do you have any special tips for us, any things that you see going wrong with farmers' applications when they are trying to apply this propionic acid uh, onto their alfalfa? Uh, yeah, there's some, there's some issues you, they need to be aware of. You know, when we talk about propionic acid, uh, it's an organic-based compound that they're going to be using as a preservative. Yep. Uh, one thing that is, is very important is that uh, they try to use a propionic acid that is buffer. Uh, if you're using a buffer propionic acid, you usually get a better concentration. Uh, it's not as caustic and corrosive as you're using just a general uh, propionic acid. Uh, rates are very important as well. Yeah, I think that's one of the major uh, mistakes that we see sometimes with producers using uh, propionic acid is that you need to take, calculate your rate for application based on the percent of propionate that you have on that compound to make sure that you're getting the correct rate. Uh, so we usually recommend that if your hay is um, less than 25%, you can use about 8 pounds of, uh, of, pro- of the propionate-based uh, product uh, per ton of hay produced. If you are above that 25%, 
uh, moisture content, then you might be looking at about 20 uh, pounds per ton of hay produced. And we do not, rec- we do not recommend to use uh, this preservative when your moisture content is more than 35%. Yeah, thirty-five is usually big trouble. And uh, yeah, Rocky, I don't, I don't know. Um, I don't think farmers would ever want to cut rates. You know, that doesn't sound like farmers <laughs> at all. But uh, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's the issue well, that we, and, we've and always talk, had. To. You talked about getting buffered product too, Rocky. And I know this is a really big deal because guys don't want to tear their equipment up; they want it to last a long time. And uh, yet having to pay the higher price for the buffered product is sometimes challenging. So uh, yeah. I know there's there's a, a big debate there all the time. Yeah, yeah, you know, it comes to economics, but also, you know, if, if you want to preserve that equipment for the long term, you know, I think, it, you know, it's when you put the numbers down, you have to consider that you might get a, a better return by using a product that's going to be safer, not so uh, corrosive, and it's going to give you, uh, a return on the drying time that you're looking to get with those systems. So when we talk about that return, do you find that a lot of the farmers who are using propionic acid, are they getting the return that they're after? Do they then continue using the product? Uh, some of the producers that I have that use that product in the past have been very happy with them. Yeah. Uh, especially, uh, you know, when we are in, in conditions that you might get rain for a couple of days. Right. And you try to get ahead of the rain. Uh, it has a return value for them uh, trying to preserve that hay and making sure that they're not losing uh, 30 to 40% of the, uh, of the hay crop yield that they have at that cut. All right. Any other comments you got real quick on preservatives at all? Otherwise, i got a couple other questions for you. Well, you know, and preservatives also what we call uh, bacterial preservatives. Uh, those have not been very successful on on a hay that is less than 35% uh, uh, moisture content. Uh, most of the material preservatives that we see in the market is something that we recommend, especially in the southern United States, when you're making uh, what we call bellage or haylage, where you're looking at that moisture content of uh, 40 to 60%, and you put in a round bale, you're wrapping that, that hay, uh, those preserved bacterial inoculants might help with the fermentation process and uh, speed the fermentation process and preserve uh, that alfalfa. Yeah, that makes complete sense. So the bacterial products more for baleage or haylage. All right, so we've only got a couple minutes left. Just in, in terms of general alfalfa questions that you're getting like in your state um, it, what do you get the most questions of is it for about is it fertility is it weeds insects what, what where are the questions come come from uh, well I guess it's all the, all the above because you know alfalfa is making a comeback in the in the southern United States and one of the things that we focus mainly is not so much in quality because our quality is usually very high uh, we're talking protein content between 20 and 24 percent uh, more than the most producers are used in the southern United States. Uh, we focus mainly in, in fertility. was one thing that we actually focus quite a bit, making sure that the pH and, and the potassium levels uh, are what they need to be at to make sure that our alfalfa is going to be persistent. Our goal is to get at least four to five years of uh, production for the stand, uh, if we can. And so we focus quite a bit also on having that fertility to make sure that our alfalfa is going to develop a strong root system, uh, it's going to be able to be productive. We also focus in uh, cardio management, uh, you know, making sure that it's part of the right stage and also in variety selection. Uh, in the south, we, we 
looking at using varieties that are going to be dormancy 5 to dormancy 8 uh, for our production system, depending on where you add in the side of the United States. All right, great tips. Again, we've been talking to Rocky Limo. He is with Mississippi State University. Rocky, thanks a lot for the time today. We really enjoyed it. Appreciate it. Uh, thank you. You bet. Yeah, he had some great tips at the end there. Soil pH is huge. If you want good alfalfa production, the soil needs to be up near that 7 for a pH. And potassium, we talked about that earlier in the show and how important that is. And obviously, the timing that you cut that alfalfa, incredibly important as well. We'll continue talking about alfalfa management right after this. If you're a rancher who's obsessed with keeping your pastures clear, turn to Grace on Next Herbicide. It offers superior broadleaf weed control, so instead of thinking about weeds, you can think about the money you'll save growing more grass and buying less feed. Used early in the season, Graze On Next also provides residual activity that controls newly emerged weed seedlings, giving you season-long control. Start enhancing your land while you protect it. Visit leavetheweedstoss.com to learn more about Graze On Next. Always read and follow label directions. When it comes to my weed control, I know a head start can go a long way. That's why I spray early, so I can keep control all season long with a Roundup Ready Extend Crop System. The system that makes the difference. This is my field. Choose the Roundup Ready Extend Crop System for control of more weeds than any other soybean system. Featuring Extendamax herbicide with vapor grip technology to manage tough-to-control weeds, including up to 14 days of soil activity, along with the field-proven performance of Roundup Ready to Extend soybeans. Now you have the right tools to extend your weed control and extend your yield with the system that makes the difference. Learn how you can put the system to work in your field when you visit RoundupReadyExtend.com. Extendamax is a restricted-use pesticide. Performance may vary. Always read and follow grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. Check local regulations for specific requirements in your state. Build with the best. When you choose Morton Buildings for your next farm storage building, you'll experience the Morton Advantage at every step, starting before the walls even go up. Since the value of our buildings is in its ability to protect what you have stored inside, we ensure that every component is researched and tested to withstand the elements in all weather conditions. And we back it up with the strongest warranty in the business. Looks better. Built stronger. Lasts longer. Learn more at MortonBuildings.com. As your corn crop grows and the ear begins to form, potassium is at a high demand, almost as high as nitrogen. The same is true for soybeans with similar high demands of potassium during pod fill. Don't fall behind and ensure your crop is getting its potassium with Catalyst. Catalyst by Actigrow has been shown to be the best at entering the leaf when compared to other leading potassium products. Visit k-supercharged.com for more information. If your fertilizers aren't formulated to maximize your efficiency, if you can't mix all the PK and micros your crop needs into one prescription application, if you have to add products to improve and invigorate your soil biology, then you need to expect more from your fertilizer. With AgroLiquid's advanced technology, you can expect more, a lot more. Make the most of your crop nutrition. With AgroLiquid, to find a crop nutrition expert near you, visit agroliquid.com.
Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton Studio today, talking about alfalfa today and taking your calls and questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. Got Steve Ledoux with us right now up in New York. He's with AgriLiquid. Steve, how are you doing today? Good. How about yourself? Well, pretty good. Uh, we were talking with Rocky Lemus, who works with Mississippi State uh, just before the break, and and he brought up a couple of fertility topics in there. He talked about how big a deal potassium is for so many of their growers for good hay production, and then he talked about soil pH, that he thinks we need more of a focus on pH. A lot of guys get that, uh, but some don't realize just how big a deal it is. Just wondering what your thoughts are with the area you work up in New York. Um, actually, I cover Ontario and New York, and up here, uh, a lot of cold weather issues more than anything, and uh, we use a lot of potassium because if you look at what a crop removal rate is for alfalfa, there's as much potassium as it is nitrogen, and you also have to get potassium that doesn't have a lot of chloride and hydroxide in it, and that's kind of what we can do with, with the programs that we have and we put together for alfalfa. Um, pH is important because, you know, alfalfa just get a sweet spot. You know, that, six and that 6.5 to 7.5 is kind of where you're looking to be, so that is pretty important for alfalfa to keep the stand up on going for a long period of time. So it's kind of both important, you know, no matter where you are in the world, I guess. How about in your territory? Do you do you run into a lot of pH issues? If so, is it a lot of high pH or a lot of low pH or, or some of both? We would be more low pH here than it would be high. Um, we don't have very alkaline soils here, so uh, average pH here is probably going to be anywhere from 5.9 to 6.8 for the majority of it. Uh, a lot of the guys on alfalfa ground that have some pretty deep calcium soils will have a little bit higher pH than that, but we're a lot more acidic than we are alkaline for sure. All right, so talk to me about the potassium, and, and Brian had talked about uh, utilizing an approach where you want to get that ground fit for alfalfa up front uh, because there's only so much you can do in between cuttings. What's what's your experience been? I know you've done a lot of work uh, with the, I know AgriLiquid in general has done a lot of work with in-between cutting applications and, and with quite a bit of success. Yeah, um, basically, like anything else, get your base saturations as, as you know perfect as you can get them to get started. That's like putting the key in the lock, and then you can just feed the plant and feed the you know get the nutrition into the alfalfa plants that they need, and you're not trying to play catch up. Um, when you look how much they remove, I mean, you know, a five ton dry matter removal on alfalfa is 245 pounds of potassium. That's a lot of potassium to get in, and you know, in between cuttings. So you got to have the soil straight and everything balanced out and then feed accordingly based on what your yields are and, you know, based what your soil test is telling you. And then I think it's when you're going to get the maximum yield out of it. How about with the micronutrients? And I know I know you've done a lot with blended products. Do you typically use blended products or are you, are you using any uh, single micros in, in a solo approach? Um, most of the time we'll have a, a uh, like we'll put our Micro 500 product in, which is a, a balance of uh, five different things, some boron, zinc, copper, uh, iron, uh, and then also, too, if you need to add some boron, we can do that extra. Uh, manganese sometimes, depending where you are, if your iron levels and stuff and aren't out of, are kind of out of balance with your manganese, that's sometimes an addition, almost looks same, similar to soybeans. So, I mean, those are some of the things that we do. But basically, we always put a good micro pack in because the micronutrients, I think, keep the alfalfa healthier longer, and it's going to get you, you know, the maximum yield you can possibly get. So let's say I've got a four-year target and I want to have a great stand for four years. Are you going out there between every cutting? Or are you going out just between first and second cuttings with uh, additional approaches? What what have you found that's worked the best? All the research 
research we've been doing has been showing that between each cutting, if you can get some nutrition and keep spoon feeding that crop the whole year long, that's going to get you the best bang for your buck. And also we're seeing uh, increased quality and tonnage in third, third and fourth cuttings doing it that way, where sometimes, you know, depending on the weather, if it's too dry, too wet, like with guys with pivot alfalfa, they can make it rain. But here with us, we're, you know, we're all just rain, uh, you know, is all we have. We don't have any irrigation up here. So it's kind of an important thing to keep feeding that crop all year long and keep pushing it and get the maximum growth and maximum volume you can out of it. And it seems to be working as far as quality and tonnage as well. So that's kind of what we need to do here in the dairy business. You know, with uh, the regrowth too, it seems like we're getting a faster regrowth when we're feeding in between cuttings. I, I know our experience has been working with a lot of guys looking at bugs at that time too to to see what's out there, if we mm-hmm. can take care of a problem as well and, and uh, also serve two purposes by feeding that crop. It's It's been a good thing. Yeah, well, here here in, where I am in New York, we have a lot of snout beetle issues that came in through the St. Lawrence Seaway through some stuff from Europe. So over the years, they developed this technology with some nematodes that they go out and apply to the alfalfa fields, and you can put nutrition on at the same time, so you can kind of do exactly what you're saying, kind of kill two birds with one stone when you're going over it anyway. So you're using beneficial nematodes to fight the snout beetles. Yep. That's they, awesome. They, were, they, came from, they came from Europe taken them almost 30 years. Cornell University's done a lot with Northern New York ADP to get that developed, and it's a pretty standard practice here if you're going to grow some alfalfa, and it seems to be working pretty well. Very good. Yeah, it was, that was awesome. I, I really appreciate that information. That's a, a neat thing. I guess I didn't know enough about that. So I've been talking with Steve Ledoux with AgriLiquid. Steve, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on today. Thanks. Appreciate the chance to talk to you folks. Have a great day. You bet. You as well. Yeah, I, I love some of those fertility tips, and, and I agree with Steve 100%. you got to get things ready up front, uh, get your base base saturations just perfect, and then you're not playing catch-up. Now you can just feed the crop as you go, and I love uh, love the approach of, hey, let's get out there in between cuttings. Let's, let's feed it. Let's get some faster regrowth. We're getting a little better quality, a little better tonnage. Uh, that's important. Yeah, alfalfa is a challenging crop compared to, like, corn or soybeans because you have harvest so many harvest dates – and you want that stand to last a long time. So I, quite often we will say, for example, if at this time of year you've seen a whole bunch of dandelions in there, I go, eh, I don't know. It's it, you got it's got to survive the winter. It's got all this competition out there. I'm probably going to suggest next spring you rip it up, plant a different crop, then come back with alfalfa in a year or two again. So it's it just gets really hard to, number one, get your tons, number two, get your quality when you've got all that competition out there. Well, you know, we're talking about the preservatives, too. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that gets to be a real challenge with alfalfa is if you get rain and you just can't get your stuff off there fast enough or you're just not getting good days to cure that alfalfa up. And that's where preservatives come in for me if we can... Uh, be a little bit more in control of that. It helps so much with with just having a good long-term stand and being successful. So, yeah, there's a lot of things that go into this. I know when we were kids, we we weren't using preservatives at that point. And there, I mean, certainly we knew about propionic acid, but uh, the strategy was uh, Dad just needed to have Brian and me fully engaged as soon as we needed to get out there and bail up some bales. We needed we to get it done. Yeah, we didn't do much for alfalfa, though. We did so. a little bit. Brian. Yeah, was, I know. It was enough. But that's, no, that's the whole thing. When you only have a little bit, then you can manage things a lot more closely. You don't need as many hours before the rain is going to come 
to get everything up. And that's the whole thing. When you're in a dry area of the country, and especially in dry years, yeah, the preservative isn't as big a concern because you can get everything up, you can get the moisture just right. It's it's not as big a deal. Um, one other thing, we didn't talk about it at all today, Darren, was bale wrapping. Um, there are a lot more people that are doing that, and part of the concept is just you keep the oxygen out, and mold needs oxygen. So anyway, I mean, there, there are some different strategies out there. I guess we would just encourage you, like we do with all crops, take a look at managing your crop a little bit more intensely. Just try some things out, try some different things, and see what ends up working for you. But all I can tell you is there are a lot of people who are really highly managing their alfalfa and having some pretty great success. All right. Uh, again, our phone lines are open here throughout the rest of the show at 844-44-AG-PHD. If you've got an agronomic question, you can also send us an email today, radio at agphd.com. We've got a number of emails we want to jump into here in just a little bit in the Ag PhD mailbag time. And you can find us on Twitter, Ag PhD Media, Brian Hefty, or Darren Hefty. Hey, and and uh, One other thing I was going to throw out, uh, as long as we have just a, a, a little bit of time here, we do have our Ag PhD Winter Workshops posted now, so if you are interested in attending one of those, we're going to have three in a row. It, let's see, we'll have a tiling clinic, we're going to have a soils clinic, and then right in the middle of that, we're going to have a weed, insect, and disease workshop as well. And that's coming up here at the end of January. So all those are free if you would like to attend. We'd love to have you. That would be great. The other thing is we do have a couple of collegiate workshops we're going to be doing this winter, and we're going to be giving away 40 college scholarships that are two collegiate workshops, 40 total between the two. So you can check that out. All that information is at agphd.com under the events tab. Well, stay tuned. We're going to get to your questions in the Ag PhD mailbag next. There's a new authority in town. New Authority Supreme Herbicide from FMC combines the best-in-class Group 14 PPO herbicide with the newest Group 15 herbicide for lasting residual control of water hemp, palmer amaranth, kochia, pigweed, and other tough, resistant weeds. This exclusive liquid premix of single-application chemistries protects your soybeans from pre-plant to harvest. It also protects your bottom line. Authority Supreme Herbicide qualifies for the agronomic and economic incentives of the FMC Freedom Pass program. Rule your soybean fields with more authority than ever before with Authority Supreme Herbicide from FMC. More powerful preventative control isn't on the horizon, it's here. Visit your FMC retailer or fmccrop.com to learn more. Always read and follow all label directions, restrictions, and precautions for use. Authority Supreme Herbicide is not registered for sale or use in California. FMC and Authority are trademarks of FMC Corporation or an affiliate. Every farmer knows there are lots of steps to having a perfect season. Don't let your fertilizer plan be the step that trips you up. For over 35 years, AgroLiquid has had the experts and the products that'll help you move closer to your target. No matter when you apply fertilizer, no matter how, you'll hit the bullseye. AgroLiquid can help you increase yields and crop quality. To learn more, go to agroliquid.com. AgroLiquid moves you closer to your target. Are you combining around weed patches, waiting for weeds to dry down, or tired of spring burndown failures? Save time, nutrients, and moisture by including a Valor herbicide brand in your fall burndown program. Valor provides excellent residual control of tough weeds, including kochia, mare's tail, prickly lettuce, dandelion, plus suppression of bromes. 
proactive, effective weed resistance management starts in the fall. Get a clean start for your next season with Valor Herbicide Brands. Always read and follow label directions. You need a powerful herbicide to fight the war on weeds. Bellum is Rotam North America's Mesotrion herbicide, and it fights against the annual broadleaf weeds attacking your cornfields. Winning this battle means higher yields, lower cost to you, and maximized profitability. For long-lasting residual weed control, check out Evinco, Vilify, and our newest mix, Rixa. For application, flexibility, and season-long control, that's Evinco, Vilify, and Rixa, powered by Bellum. For more information, visit bellumherbicide.com. That's B-E-L-L-U-M herbicide.com. How much yield did you lose the moment you planted your seed? Introducing the Germinator Closing Wheel from Farm Shop MFG. Designed and built by a farmer tired of seeing yield loss from poor stands, the Germinator gives your crop the strong start it needs for maximum yield. Visit farmshopmfg.com. Ideal for herbicide applications, the ultra-low drifts large air-inducted droplets were designed to eliminate driftable fines without sacrificing coverage. Its thick three-dimensional pattern creates multiple angles for the spray to cover the target. Hypro, helping you spray better. Come on in. The Ag PhD mailbag is about to begin. Thanks for listening to Ag PhD Radio today. We are in the Ag PhD mailbag time where we take your calls and agronomic questions throughout the rest of the show. I'm going to jump into a couple of emails here first, but if you'd like to call in, you can at 844-44-AG-PHD. Uh, RTP says, what's your best choice for weed killers in a mixed vegetable home garden? Ooh, good question, because it all depends on what the vegetables are. And unfortunately, <laughs> right. there's probably some broad leaves and there's probably also some grasses. And when you start looking, like, for example, uh, for us, we, we may mainly raise corn and soybeans. And there's very few things that we can use on both. And I'd say the same thing for your mixed vegetable garden. A lot of times, soil applied, we like to use preen, which would have the active ingredient trifluralin. We also use the active ingredient metolachlor. Now, some crops can handle one, some crops can handle the other, and a few crops can handle both. So you just have to kind of look. You may just sort your garden out uh, in a certain way and plan that so you can utilize you know, one product yes. on quite a few different crops on one side and then have a divider line or a walkway or a path, and then on the other side use a different chemistry, and then you could rotate them, and that would be good for fighting weed resistance. Yeah, then, but you got to keep in mind, if there's rain that could move the soil from one side to the other side, now you got a problem. Potentially. So it's just something that you could you could figure out over time, and maybe even yep. in that walkway you raise it just a little bit, and then you don't have to worry about right. any soil moving from one side to the other. The other thing that I would say is post-emerge, uh, we can there's a few products that, that can get pretty widely used, like clethodim, for example, is one of the grass killers that could be used in a number of different crops. But you'll just have to check the labels to see, you know, with the particular vegetables that you're trying to grow. So as if far you as have, you so if you have specific vegetables that you are, that you want to know, what can I use there? Then let us know. All right. Thanks a lot, RTP. Really appreciate that. Uh, Troy says, or I'm just curious, are you guys going to hold a tiling clinic this winter? Yeah, I just had mentioned that before the break. It is The details of that are on our website at agphd.com. Since you've got the question, I will pull that up on the website quick. Let's see how quickly I can do this. Yeah, we're excited about that because uh, we're going to do it at the Morton Center here right on our own farm. Yep. So we can actually pull equipment inside the building. Yeah, and So you can look at all the different equipment and, and see exactly what you'd be using. Yeah, so it's going to be on Tuesday, January 28th, 9.30 a.m. to 3 p.m. And again, that is at the Morton Center right on our farm farm 
near Baltic, South Dakota. And, right. and the details are at agphd.com under the events tab. All right, got one in from Jeff up in the Olivia, Minnesota area. He said, I grew up plowing on the farm. I'm right between you guys in age. Uh, we used to plow here in Minnesota about nine inches deep. When I got my first 730 DMI ripper, the salesman had us going 10 inches deep to break up the plow pan we had caused running nine inches deep. Now, I haven't plowed in 24 years. How deep would you recommend ripping corn ground in soils in our area? I like I like the end of his email, too. It's soils in our area, not in Baltic. <laughs> You know, one of the fun things when we talk to farmers is just talking to each individual about their particular ground. Soil types are different, geographies, weather, all these things. But yes, Darren and I do work with farmers all over the world, so we're very familiar with the soil over there. Uh, nevertheless, it doesn't matter what your soil is. What we're concerned about, and the only real question here is, you wanted to know how deep to go? We would tell you, you got to dig around a little bit yourself and find out where am I running into compaction? If I'm only running into compaction, let's call it six inches deep. Well, then to me, it would make a lot of sense to just go down to maybe seven or eight inches and call her good. If you are finding a lot of compaction at, like you were in the past, nine inches, or maybe you moved it down to 10 inches, I know it's going to take some fuel and it's going to take some more time, but if I could, I would try to get just below that level. So a lot of times we will find there are a couple different layers of compaction in that soil too, depending on what you've done in the past. So if you've been doing lighter tillage, then we'll usually find a compaction layer at maybe four or five inches deep. And then we find the old plow pan a lot of times, maybe it is nine, 10 inches deep, something like that. So ideally we'd like to get through both. All right, I uh, got one in from Kelly who said, we have a lot of standing water, mud, and rutted up fields. Is it better to try light fall tillage to just cover the ruts, or should I leave it until spring? I really don't want to create any more compaction than I already have. <laughs> oh, and I apologize, I'm laughing just because we have the same issue. Everybody, It seems like everybody has the same issue. Okay, so... Here's the first thing that I'll say. So we've got some river bottom ground right now where we lost the crop. The crop's still standing out there. It was two weeks before we would have, well, maybe three weeks before we would have harvested. And then the river comes up and it's feet deep in these fields. And so we lost about 150 acres of beans. It stinks. It's the way it goes. That happens. But anyway, I was just talking to Darren about this yesterday and I said, and our farm manager, and I said, okay, I got a couple of concerns. Number one, if I have that, like my issue, I'm worried about if we don't chop that stuff up really good, slice it up really good, it's going to be all stringy in the spring and we're going to have a problem planting our corn down there. Number two, what I'm most worried about is we need to turn that ground black. So I don't care if it's wet. We're, we're going to till anyway. We'll fix it up again another year. But I just know if I don't try to turn it black yet this fall, and we don't have a lot of time. I have days left, not weeks. I have days left before freeze up. So in those days, we are going to somehow get that done and tilled because if it's not, um, it, it might be June before we plant down there next year. So 
that's the extreme case. And I don't know what you're dealing with exactly here, but I would say this. If it's ground where you go, man, unless I turn that black, I I don't know that I'm even going to get in, then I might try to do some full-scale tillage, even knowing that I'm going to create a bunch of compaction. That's not my first choice, though. I would love to just do, you know, some vertical tillage or something like that that's, okay, I'm going to chop stuff up. I'm going to still leave some residue out there. I'm going to start filling some things in but it's not perfect, but at least I didn't go out and create a whole bunch of compaction. And then I'm going to hope for the best that the spring is dry. And if you believe that the spring is going to be drier, that's the path that I would take. Okay. And then the other big thing is try to get some tile in that ground. Even now, I mean, we're tiling on our farm. I don't know if the guys are out there this afternoon, but we've been tiling on our farm for the last week and a half probably. And I'd really encourage you if you can, get some tile in the ground. It's funny, our our Ag PhD research lead, uh, Glenn, he was just up doing some plots of ours about 200 miles to the north and the west of where we farm. And we had, uh, there had been a whole bunch of tile put in in a relatively small area where our plot is. Okay, so we actually bought this plot ground. It's not real big. It's probably, I don't know, five, 10 acres. But anyway, we put a whole bunch of tile in there last fall because I said, I, I, this area, the high water tables, everything else, I know we got to get this done. So the neighbors, nobody's going because it's too wet. And Glenn just went and harvested, no problem, yields great, everything's awesome. So drainage, obviously, is so huge. So if you need more drainage, if you need to get that done, I, I, I would just encourage you, keep working on it. I mean, in a lot of cases, you can keep tiling almost all winter long if you really, really, really wanted to get it done. All right. Uh, thanks for the question. Really appreciate that. I uh, got one from Jared. He said, I'm a new listener. Really appreciated the topics that I've been hearing on your show, especially pigweed control. We farm in Northeast Indiana. I've been about 100% no-till here for eight years or so. We have the most issues with giant ragweed and water hemp. In soybeans, we've been doing a pre-plant burn down with authority. Post-emerge, we're using Liberty. But I'm realizing that what you said about layering residuals has to be considered this winter because we've seen more and more escapes. My question revolves around cover crops because we are having success getting ahead of the weeds in fields where we had cereal rye the previous fall slash spring. In fields where there is rye pre-plant, would you still use your three pre-method? And if yes. so, would any of those residuals hinder establishing a cover crop next year? It Okay, so... With cereal rye, let's talk about the three pre's. Metribuzin, no, it's not going to hurt it at all. The Valor, I would use Valor instead of Authority. Well, he's already been using Authority and hadn't had a problem. Okay. So yeah. if you're and not authority. having a problem with Authority, I Great. wouldn't be too worried. Yep, so the only one that we would be worried about would be Trifluralin Prowl. Prowl is going to last a little less time than Trifluralin. It's just, unfortunately, it costs a lot more. So... I, I, I don't know. I'd, I'd maybe keep my trifluralin rate down. For sure, I'm at a pint and a half. Maybe you go to a pint and a quarter or something. Cut it back just a little more. That would be the only one of the three that I'd be real worried about could possibly hinder your rye. But let's also keep in mind, even if there's a little damage to the rye, it's probably not that big a deal. It's probably still going to grow. You're probably going to be okay because it's several months after uh, afterwards. And also, if you have heavy weed pressure, here's the bright side of that. You're going to use up a lot of the herbicide and carry over is very little risk. All right. Thanks for the question. Really appreciate that, Jared. And thanks for checking out our show. It's, uh, it's good to have you aboard. Thanks for listening today. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio. 
Now stay tuned for Rob Sharkey and Shark Farmer Radio.